Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, a decade into Justin Trudeau's leadership, why do the liberals still think that he's still their best bet for re-election? Hackers working with Russia's spy agency claim they have disrupted operations at a Canadian natural gas pipeline company. Not so sure how much of that is true and how much of it is misinformation. We'll delve into that for you. And the critics are warning the Ford government about its plan to meet housing targets. They say it's going to fuel sprawl into farmland. Sabrina Nanji, publisher of the Queen's Park Observer, will talk to us about that. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with today, uh, it's back to work for uh, our politicians as well, both at Queen's Park and in Ottawa. And uh, on this, the 10th anniversary of uh, winning the party leadership, a battered yet uh, battle-tested prime minister is uh, governing in the face of stubborn speculation about his political future. Uh, There are those that uh, suggest that maybe his best before date has come and gone or is approaching one or the other. Uh, and even within the own party, there are some rumblings about maybe it's time for a change in leadership. Nonetheless, the uh, the prime minister seems to insist anyway that he's going to stick around. He's not going anywhere anytime soon. And uh, he still thinks that he and his party are the best solution for this country right now. He was asked actually uh, just a couple of days ago about uh, the budget uh, that his government just produced and uh, the concern that it was not balanced. There's a lot of spending and we're going deeper into debt. And here's what the prime minister had to say about that. I think people need to understand uh, that this is a time uh, where Canadians need that extra support. We're seeing even with inflation coming down, which is a good thing, which is a response to the measures that we've put forward. Food prices, for example, are still too high. That's why uh, we're bringing in significant supports uh, for Canadians on buying groceries, but the 11 million Canadians who need it the most. Uh, These are the kinds of things we move forward to help with affordability. Uh, And on and on it goes. And uh, as to whether or not people are actually going to buy that message, well, time will tell, I guess. I don't know when the next action is going to be. But to give us some perspective on that, so please welcome back to the program, Dr. Laurie Turnbull. Uh, Dr. Turnbull is the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, Laurie, hope you had a good long weekend. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Bill. I did have a good long weekend. It was great. Excellent. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about what I've noticed over the last two or three days and looking at some of the uh, the press that uh, is covering what's going on in Ottawa these days. Of course, we're going to get into the foreign interference thing in a couple of seconds, and, and I know that's had an impact on, on the popularity or lack thereof of the government. Uh, but there seems to be at least in the media anyway, uh, an awful lot of people are of the mind that uh, that maybe it's time that the Liberals had to change the leadership. Maybe after 10 years uh, and, and a couple of near misses and, and a number of different uh, scandals, as some people classify them, uh, that it's time. But uh, I, I don't think the Prime Minister got that email, though, did he? <laughs> I don't know. I don't, it doesn't really look like he does. He has. I mean, it's a tough one. I think because the way political parties seem to be doing uh, leadership selection and there's a whole bunch that might be fitting into that, but it seems like when a party takes on a new leader, the party really takes on the image, um, the profile, the value system, the approach, the preferences of the leader. And then when you're getting a new leader, it's like the party has to remake itself. So it is a massive undertaking for a party, and I can imagine why everybody's a little bit hesitant about doing that. And I mean, it makes it difficult, I think, oh God, there's, I'm so sorry for this, this siren here is coming right by me. Um, It's difficult for a party, I think, to have to go through that. And also for people to be able to say to the leader, this time for you to go. (laughs) Like it's, it's really, really tricky. I think even more than it used to be. So there's a little bit of that going on. 
Well, sure. And, and I guess that's the age old question for anybody in elected office or athletes or politicians, whatever it is. Uh, you know, when do I go before I get pushed out? Uh, you know, and right. you try to find that balance. Most of them don't get it right, by the way. So, you know, this is not as if this is a unique situation. Well, what's your sense, though, Laurie, within the caucus? And I'm not talking about what people are saying publicly, uh, mm -hmm. but. Do the liberals and, and those who want to be liberals, I guess, who may be running uh, in the next election, whether that's going to be, are they comfortable going into that election with, with Justin Trudeau still as their leader? I think some are and some aren't. I think um, some people are actually pretty keen to see some leadership transition. I think there has been disgruntlement in caucus since day one with this prime minister because the this PMO, in my view, has not been great at caucus relationships. They haven't been great at building support for the kinds of um, measures that they want to take sometimes that all of the members are not necessarily on board with. And so, I mean, I can remember back in 2015 and 2016 where there were caucus leaks of, of um, you know, bill kits and stuff like that because the, the work hadn't been done to make sure that caucus realized why they all had to be on side. And so I think even the switch from a majority government to a minority government to 2019 that was a moment where the, the shine started to come off Trudeau quite a bit, right? And by the time he got to that 2019 election, um, the, the blackface photo surfaced almost immediately in the campaign. He had gone through this, this business with SNC Lavalin and the fact that, that Jody Wilson Raybould and Jane Philpott had left cabinet over all of this. Like there has been a very significant you know, deterioration, I think, of the image of the and the political brand of the prime minister. And though he seems to survive it all, this is a weird thing to me, right? Like no matter what happens, the guy just like, yeah, okay, I'm sorry. I wish I had done better. And then he just moves on and forgets about it. But I, it's like, he's kind of stuck in that where he's not being kicked out over it and the government isn't being defeated over it, but it's just sort of not it, it, it doesn't seem to be able to climb out of that to get any better. And so I think some caucus are, are members are probably a bit worried about like who's going to come next, right? Like there's no, this is not a Gretchen Martin situation where there's somebody in the wings who's mobilizing and it's creating pressure on Trudeau. Like there's no sense of that at all, right? There's a, the occasional whisper about Freeland, but she's not going to do this. And people are talking about maybe Champagne and maybe Jolie, but those people, I mean, you, you don't get any sense of any palpable organization, at least not one to the point that anybody's going to start really pushing on him. And so I think caucus is probably interested in what's going to come next, but there's no particular uh, coordination about what that's going to be. Well, yeah, and I, I think, you know, the, the comparison between the Martin Kretchen situation, I think, is very instructive here, too, because that was open warfare. I mean, everybody knew oh, yeah. uh, what was going on there, and there was the Martin camp within the caucus, and, and they were quite open about the fact that they wanted their boss to leave so their guy could get in there, and it, it got ugly, didn't it? It did because I mean, and and it's not like I'm I'm thinking back to that and saying, oh, we should do that again. I mean, it was that was difficult for a lot of reasons, and I think put a lot of pressure on the governing situation. However, even the two of them, you know, obviously, they, as you say, it was open warfare. They still managed a prime, a, a very, I think. Um, uh, I guess at least if effective, depending on how you look at it, a uh, relationship as prime minister and finance minister for many years, even though one wanted the other's job and made no bones about it. There was much they didn't agree on, but they seemed to respect one another, you know, as, as leaders in their approaches to economic and social situations and all the rest of it. And some would argue there was a healthy tension there. Some others would argue there was an unhealthy tension, but there is not that dynamic occurring again. And I mean, even when you think about things like the leadership selection process, we're not in the world of delegated conventions anymore. 
where you have organization around somebody and that organization might continue even after somebody else wins, right? So even like Kretchen Martin is an example of this too. When Kretchen won, Martin still had a major organization around him and that continued. And so his leadership bid didn't really end in earnest when he lost in 1990. But now leadership selection is all about how many members you can sign up. So, you know, comparing to to Pierre Polyev, for example, he signed up a ton of people. He won on the first ballot, hands down. And where are the campaigns of the other people? Like, they're gone because mm-hmm. it's not the same kind of organization. And so it's not the same kind of lifeline for the party either. And so I think when you see a leadership candidate defeated, it's like, that's it. And so then the the pressure on the leader in an organized way, whoever won, is not the same. The difference, though, I don't want to keep going back to the Martin, but but I mean, that was a time and place uh, where those guys maybe didn't like each other personally, but you're right, they worked together. Uh, mm. But they were of the same mindset. You know, the Kretchens, the Paul Martins, the John Manleys uh, were fiscal conservatives, but, you know, with yep. a social conscience. That, that was the definition of a liberal then. I get the sense that the, the disenchanted people in the liberal caucus now, or those who are just wanting to support, uh, are very uncomfortable with the way that the, the, the Trudeau has taken this, this, this liberal team so far to the left. Uh, and I guess as long as they're winning, they said, well, I don't like it, but I guess as long as we're winning, fine. Well, they're not so sure they're winning now anymore. So I think you're going to see a lot of disgruntlement. But if if you're looking for somebody to say, okay, we want a new leader who's going to take us back to those days, I don't see one on the horizon here. I think you're on to something very important, Bill, because I absolutely agree with you. Martin and Kretchen were always trying to manage the left wing of the party the Sheila Copps of the party who would say, this is not why I became a liberal. This is BS. Like I'm out there telling my constituents that we're clawing back things to try to right the economy. Yeah, that's fine. But we did not become liberals because we wanted to take things away from people. And Kretchen and Martin were always managing that side of the party. And they did so, you know, by bringing them into decisions and by trying to get them on the right committees and showing that they had some awareness, right? And when they could, they would bring some program spending back and try to make things a little bit more balanced. But there was no question that Martin and Kretchen were on the same side of that question. But now you're right, right? Like uh, Justin Trudeau seems to be uh, pulling the party in a direction that is far more left than liberals are, you know, have historically been used to. Jeffrey Simpson, again, in that article made that point that, you know, where is the garden variety liberal? And I think that now the, uh, the party is really in a kind of ideological exercise where we're not really sure what's going on and what's, what's going to be coming next. We don't know how much the relationship with the NDP is a part of this. And now that the, the conservatives under Pierre Polyev, they're not what they used to be either, right? And I mean that not as a slight, but as a, like, this is not a party of red Tories. This is not a party of even institutional conservatives. When you listen to Pierre Polyev, he's doing something entirely different. And so I think all of the parties are trying to figure out, like, where are we going to land? They're all chasing votes. None of them are doing it with a particular focus on the center in Canada. So it's, it's very odd. A lot of political orphans. Well, there are, and and you know, there are some lingering and, and maybe ongoing uh, themes here that I think uh, some people in Ottawa are feeling, you know, quite uncomfortable with. Uh, even Peter Mansbridge on his podcast the other day, uh, you know, was, was talking about, you know, maybe it's time for the Liberals and the NDP to develop some long-term yeah. relationship. And, and I, I know some Liberals would say, no, no, that's not the way we mm-hmm. want to go here. Uh, but that it's still there; it's still out there, and people are still talking about that as if, well, this this is the new Liberal Party, and if you don't like it 
working over there. Well, you know, too bad for you. Uh, and I'm not so sure that they're comfortable with that too. And the, the prime minister, I don't, he's, for all the criticisms about Trudeau and, you know, what he has done or not done, uh, both personally and uh, on a, a political level, uh, he's he's not a dumb man. I mean, he's clever. He has to understand what's going on here. And he just I, seems he's not oblivious to it, but he just does not seem to have in, any way that this is going to have any impact on what he's going to do. He's, he's not hesitating at all. Just saying this is what I wanted to do to this party and this is what I'm going to continue to do to this party. Yeah, I I think there's a lot of cleverness on in him too. I absolutely, he's a very shrewd politician. He didn't. People sometimes make the mistake of underestimating him, and he has many times proven that he's got you know whatever it is it takes to succeed in this world, and he has been able to build coalitions to support him in times where the odds seem to be stacked against him. There's no question this guy knows what he's doing politically. However, I think it is fair to say that there is a bit of a blind spot when it comes to how others. In kind of um, interpret his actions and his choices and his words. I think that there is a blind spot in when it comes to Pierre Polyev. I think that the party, you know, even when they're out there trying to sell the budget, they're setting up the provinces as the the opponent rather than the conservatives. I think that he they there is a little bit of an underestimation on their part in terms of the possibility that a lot of people are going to give Pierre Polyev and the conservatives a chance. And so the weaknesses, I think, are are about that, about kind of, you know, if given an opportunity, people actually might vote for someone else. And if the if the NDP and Jagmeet Singh figure out how to really take some credit and ownership for the parts of the budget that people liked. Meanwhile, Pierre Polyev is out there. And I don't know if you've seen this last video, Bill, where he's out there talking about how do you take a date home when you're 35 living in your parents' basement? I'm like, what is he talking about? But then when you watch the video, he's like, he is hitting something important with people like he is building on what I think he's learning are his strengths and weaknesses. He's figuring that out. And the way he is talking to crowds is about the, like the types of things that are keeping people up at night. And he's actually using the liberal messaging around housing back in his own way. Like uh, the video is talking about, he's in a crowd of people talking about, you know, we, we need to, to come back to home ownership. We need to make that dream real for you. And that's what the liberals have been talking about this whole time about mm -hmm. growing the middle class. So I think they should be very nervous. Well, uh, one final note here. I know we're just about out of time, but I'll, I'll go back to 2005, I guess, uh, where the liberals have been in power for quite some time. And, you know, and they didn't look at, they just won another minority government a couple of years before that. Paul Martin was reelected by the slimmest of margins, of course. Mm. And I think there was a mindset within the Liberal Party in those days, Laura, that look, at, there's no way these, this, this Canadian electorate is ever going to go for Stephen Harper. They just don't like the guy. Well, they did. Uh, they just yeah. got tired of the liberals. They got tired of the sponsorship scandal. They got tired of a whole bunch of things and said, I don't care. I don't, he's, he, he's not our favorite, but let's, let's put him in there. And I can yeah. see the same thing happening here where they're just, you know, they're tired of all this. You can't keep saying he's always going to find a way to win because if, if you're, your strategy here is to say, well, we're not Pierre Polyev. Uh, that's, that's, that's not sustainable, no matter nope. what people may be thinking. I, I agree 100%. Uh, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today, Laurie. I really appreciate the conversation. Me too. Thanks, Bill. Take care. You too. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from Dalhousie University with the perspective uh, from the nation's capital. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
Canadian Wesley Wark expects Canada will likely wait for an investigation by American security services. He said Canadian officials will want to understand the seriousness of the incident and learn more about the specific information that pertains to Canada. Over the weekend, U.S. officials briefed allies and partners about the potential ramifications of the leak. White House spokesman John Kirby admits they don't know if there's more coming. And is that a matter of concern to us? You're darn right it is. The leak documents also describe claims by Russian-backed hackers that they successfully accessed Canada's natural gas infrastructure. They contain apparent inaccuracies and alterations, which puts into question their authenticity. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. So, uh, welcome back. This is the Bill Kelly Show, of course. Guys, so glad you're with us here at 980 CFPL London and 900 CHML in Hamilton. And another example, I guess, of, of the concern that we have really about national security. And this has been an ongoing problem for weeks and months. And, and we want to explore this a little more because we're concerned about the impact this is going to have uh, on on business and, and not just on, on elections. I mean, you know, when, when this whole thing started to percolate a couple of weeks ago, it was on the premise that there were foreign entities that were trying to influence uh, Canadian elections uh, through various means, obviously by funneling money into some candidates, uh, misinformation about other candidates, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, we weren't aware, I guess, at, at that time anyway, uh, just how extensive that was and the impact that it had. And and there were reassurances, of course, that we got from uh, from the federal government anyway, that uh, don't worry about it. They were not successful. The, you know, the election was the election. And uh, no matter what these people tried to do, uh, it didn't really change the outcome. Well, that may well be the case. But the fact that they have the capability to do it and the fact that, you know, that they were in some way, shape or form trying to influence it, I think was very troubling. And I think, you know, that we're justified in feeling a little queasy about this to say, hey, just what is going on here and, and what are the bad guys doing? Uh, not just uh, when it comes to the politics of it, but some of the other elements. And that's the story that Karen Rebo just uh, filled us in on just a couple of minutes ago with her reporting uh, about hackers and uh, working with Russian spy agencies, uh, apparently uh, to try to have a negative impact on Canada's natural gas pipelines. And, uh, and that's problematic for a whole lot of reasons, of course, uh, because of, of the impact that would have economically, environmentally, and, and a number of different elements to this whole thing that I think I find quite troubling to an awful lot of people. And uh, Stephen Chase wrote about this in the Globe and Mail. We're going to try to hook up with him in just a couple of seconds and, and talk about the, the research that he's done and the facts that he's uncovered about this, because the report was out there and the, and the Russians are actually bragging about this, you know, in, invariably, you know, when the, when the, uh, the whole thing about the uh, politicians uh, being impacted by this uh, was leaked out because of some CSIS documents that people got their hands on, there was an immediate denial from the Chinese communist party that said, no, 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 we don't do that sort of thing. Uh, the Russians are saying, yeah, we do. And yeah, we did. And, and I guess what is happening here is our experts now are trying to scramble and, and try to verify this or to, to find out, you know, maybe it was bogus. I mean, you know, we just talked about misinformation and disinformation campaigns. Uh, is this one of those situations where they're spreading false stories uh, to try to, to get us all concerned and, and in a lather about something that maybe didn't happen? Or is this something that really is a major concern or maybe something that they did try to do? Um, and right now we don't have the answers for that. And the fact that, uh, as, as we found out in that report, that, uh, that you know, this, this is not just a Canadian situation. I mean, we're talking about uh, stuff that was leaked from the Pentagon. Uh, just how extensive is that? And are these hackers actually working for the Russian government? 
I want to bring uh, Stephen Chase into the uh, conversation. Stephen, of course, is the senior parliamentary reporter uh, for the Globe and Mail. And uh, his piece, uh, I think, gives us a pretty chilling story of what might have happened or could have happened uh, when it comes to Canada's natural gas pipeline. Stephen, a uh, pleasure to have you back on the program. Thank you for the time today. Oh, glad to be here. You know, as I was just saying before you joined us, you know, with the accusations about the Chinese government interfering in our elections, you know, the immediate denial from the Chinese Communist Party, uh, the Russians and these hackers seem to be almost celebrating, yeah, that's us, we can do that anytime we want. That's a, that's a kind of a chilling attitude, isn't it? It is, because it's sort of the one of the worst-case scenarios that uh, some of our security agencies have been warning about for several years now, which is, uh, especially as we began to levy sanctions on the russians for their uh, illegal invasion of ukraine uh they were warning us they could they could break into our infrastructure so here we have a a scenario which uh we have to caution of course we don't have all the facts on yet but uh outlined uh a potentially a russian hacking group getting access to a, a natural gas pipeline and being able to increase the pressure and 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 damage it and disrupt supply and i mean you know it Minister Mendicino's office, I guess, has basically said, look, you know, we're not sure about this because they said, look, and, and we're not getting any information, according to your reporting here, that, that there was any disturbance or there was an explosion or anything of this nature. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they didn't attempt to do it, does it? No, and, and we talked to the Canadian Gas uh, Association, which covers, which handles distribution of gas in Canada, talked to Tim Egan there, the president, and he was still in the process of, of asking his members to... Uh, to phone in. So one of the problems is our, our the spy agency in Canada responsible for cyber protection, the communication security establishment, they don't say anything publicly. So we don't know what they know. And we, we haven't got a full accounting from the industry yet, uh, whether this happened. The, the allegation is it happened in February. Uh, and uh, the allegation, of course, was that the Russian hacking group, which was working with the FSB, which is the you know modern version of the KGB, uh, had uh, bragged about getting access through um, the internet to uh, Canadian Gas Pipeline, had the ability to do it, and had in fact caused uh, a, um, a damage that would that would cost this company profit. Just as an example of what it could do, are, are these freelancers? Or are they working for the Russian government? Or are these just people that basically say, you know, hey, we've done this, Russia. Are you interested in the information? I mean, it, it, it just seems as if there's there's two operations going on here. There's the Russian government, certainly. We know they're interested in, in doing these sorts of things. But these are these, these hackers for hire? Well, Zarya is a group that's named in the document. And it is a hacking collective in Russia, which is known to be pro-Russian or aligned with the government. And I don't understand, I don't have information on what what's in it for them, whether it's just sort of the glory of, of being able to brag at hacking or whether they're actually being given money. I suspect it's both. Uh, and again, we've only had one Russian hacking collective named, which is Zarya, but there are others as well. And uh, they seem to operate in a, a bit of a sort of uh, uh, symbiotic relationship with the Russian government. So there's the element about the natural gas pipelines here, which we need to be concerned about. The other uh, is, here we go again, uh, it's it's an information leak here uh, from the Pentagon. Um, uh, now, I know, as you say, this is spy versus spy. These sorts of things are, are attempted, if not completely done, uh, time and time again. And we'll never hear about all of these things, I guess. But it, it's, it sounds as if, uh, you know, this, this is a serious situation that the Pentagon is taking and the U.S. government is taking quite seriously, too. This is not just about a, a single pipeline or an industry here. They're worried about the North American impact, I guess. Yeah, they are, and and obviously the, there's 
you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of documents covering uh, many allies of the Americans, including Koreans, Turks. The, the documents allege the Turks are involved in a deal, a, a background deal to purchase arms for the Russians, which they're supposed to be a NATO ally. Of course, they've not been a very good ally in the last few years, but they're supposed to be a NATO ally. So that's obviously a betrayal if it's true. And of course, they also talk about how the Ukrainians uh, air defense is so ground down from uh, missile attacks that they may not have the ability to keep Russian planes out of their skies. So there's some pretty serious uh, information here. We have to caution that some of it is fake because there is um, a, a slides about casualties, Russian casualties and Ukrainian casualties. And this has already been um, disproven. In fact, these are these people seem to have transposed the numbers to show that the Russian casualties are far, far less than what anyone's expected and that the Ukrainians are far more. And uh, this is uh, being labeled as uh, as fake. Well, and that's part of the strategy, isn't it, Stephen, that, you know, it's, it's the disinformation. Uh, you, you leak these documents, you post them, and other people, of course, are going to, on social media, are, are going to, you know, read these things. First of all, they're going to absorb it, but then they're obviously going to forward it on to uh, like-minded individuals. And, and this is how you get, you know, these, these, these theories that start to build up all the time. And, and basically, I guess, to, to, to validate the Russian movement as opposed to, you know, trying to tear down the, the Ukrainian uh, situation here and, and their uh, motivations for, for engaging in situations like this. So uh, it's, it's a very effective way to, to, to swing people's minds. Uh, you know, it's not true, but it's there, and it can be used as a very effective tool. Yeah, mix some fake, fake stuff in with real stuff and then uh, undermine trust between allies and so on. And that's all it takes. In other words, if you know, if they can find two things that they can validate here, uh, and you know, well, if that's true, then the rest of it must be true too. It's it's pretty easy to fall into that trap, right? And it, it's a remarkable what happened. As, as, I don't know if you discussed this before I came on, but the way this sort of appeared on a a chat platform called Discord, which is a a chat platform for gamers, and uh, it all spiraled from there. So uh, this is a remarkable, um, uh, terrible. Uh, coup for the Russian for Russian intelligence, uh, but the Americans seem to think it came from them, so they're currently hunting uh, for a mole. That's interesting. This is this is life imitating art, I guess. That was actually a storyline on on the Jack Ryan uh, series that was on uh, on cable a couple of years ago. You know, where the mm-hmm. the terrorists were actually using uh, gaming chat rooms uh, to to pass information back and forth, assuming that yeah. you know that the Allies would not be looking at it. And I guess that's that's a reality. Yeah, and that's something they should be looking at further. There's also reports out about a year ago about uh, a, a tank, a tank, an online tank game where people played with tanks and shot each other. And these people were so expert in the tanks and they were arguing about it and how they were claiming that the people who designed the tanks on the game were had not designed them realistically enough. But people were posting you know, secret and classified manuals to demonstrate that the tanks should be built better. So ego was playing a strange role in that too. So people do things for a lot of different reasons. Uh, including ego, and uh, and this is going to be this is the kind of counterintelligence that the Americans are going to have to uh, really excel in, in the next few weeks to try to figure this out. Exactly. Well, I'm sure we're going to hear more from the Pentagon on this, uh, and certainly from the U.S. government, and we'll be looking for your reporting on that. Stephen, as always, thanks for the time today. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Take care, Stephen Chase, senior parliamentary reporter for the Globe and Mail, uh, talking about hacking. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lots going on, of course, in uh, Ottawa that we talked about last hour. Uh, but also here in Ontario, there's some ele- elements and some new twists and turns uh, to uh, some of the things the Ford government has been promising. And uh, we know, of course, from the budget that was uh, presented a couple of weeks ago now that uh, the government, the Ford government is going to fall well short of their projections for the uh, the new housing starts uh, that they had talked about. And uh, it's just not going to happen. Well, because of those numbers and because of that reality, uh, the government is now proposing to allow municipalities to expand their settlement boundaries more quickly and easily in order to open up more land for housing. Now, legislation introduced by Municipal Affairs Minister Steve Clark says it's going to give municipalities the tools to expand both within and outside the urban boundary. Here's what the minister had to say. We believe as a government that all of Ontario is a place to grow, no matter whether you live in the north you live in eastern Ontario or southwestern Ontario or in the Greater Golden Horseshoe. That's why we're consulting uh, on those matters. A lot of concern about this and a lot of pushback from uh, a number of people, including at municipal government that we're going to get to in a couple of seconds. Uh, but that's going to be our starting out point uh, with our conversation with our next guest. She is, of course, Sabrina Nanji, who is the publisher of the Queen Park Observer. Uh, Sabrina, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Bill. Good morning. Let's, let's talk a little bit about this, because you've written extensively about urban boundary expansion and the government's uh, plans to allow this sort of thing to happen, uh, you know, incursions into the green belt. The solution, that, and I use that term advisedly here, uh, for the, the, the fact that they're not going to get as many houses built uh, is not the sort of thing that most municipalities were looking for. They, they're trying to build within the boundary, and the government basically is saying, it's going to be a Wild West show. You guys, you want to expand? Go ahead, knock yourselves out. Yeah, uh, I think this was maybe another swing and a miss um, in a lot of aspects, uh, this this new housing bill that we got last week, and the fallout is still coming. I mean, Queen's Park isn't sitting. The MPPs are, are back in their ridings right now, so it's uh, we were kind of expecting it to be a little bit quieter at Queen's Park, but there's a lot of backlash that the Ford government is facing uh, over this, this housing plan, um, and a lot of people, a lot of critics in particular, are saying that it's not really going to to meet the moment and meet um, this this problem, this housing crisis that we're facing. And, and that's not to say that they haven't been praised on some aspects of it because Bill 97 that we got from Housing Minister Steve Clark, uh, it's an omnibus bill. There's a, a sweeping range of changes here and, and some of them are good. You know, I, I haven't heard much criticism about uh, boosting the rights of tenants to install air conditioning units in their window, um, increasing fines for bad faith evictions, uh, th- those types of things. I think those are, are being lauded, uh, but a lot of critics are saying this bill really doesn't do um, enough just to meet the Ford government's ambitious, very ambitious goal to build 1.5 million new homes by 2031. And you're right that this this does seem like it's an answer to uh, this problem that was pointed out in the budget, you know, that housing starts were just virtually in the toilet, nowhere near where they needed to be to, to meet that goal. And we kind of heard Clark uh, acknowledge that, you know, in the lead up to this bill last week, he, he sort of walked it back, but initially he said, you know, there's a lot of outside factors that are, um, you know, throwing a wrench in our plans here. There's inflation, um, a lot of global factors at play here. And so this is their solution. I think that, um, you know, there's a lot of concerns about sprawl and if this really will build homes where we need them, which is, you know, where the province is growing, including downtown areas and especially close to transit stations. 
Well, there's a believability element to this, is there not, Sabrina? I mean, you know, the minister in Toronto explained this, uh, as you reported last week, said that, you know, we're going to give the, the municipalities the chance to, if they want to extend their urban boundary, you know, go ahead and do that, uh, which is going to put them in conflict with an awful lot of developers, I'm sure. But the other element to this is uh, is when you look at how this is going. I mean, he also, by the way, reiterated that, and, and by the way, the green belt's going to stay right where it is. Uh, we're not going to uh, you said that a year ago too and how'd that work out so you know do you take them at the word now that this is it or are they really just kind of shoving this problem onto the municipalities well there's no doubt that the ford government has created a, a credibility problem for themselves here by opening up the green belt you know that that first time um after promising not to do it now this current legislation does not um you know further encroach on, on the protected green belt lands more than they've already done but that's not necessarily saying that they won't do it again in the in the future and so it's just not happening in this round of changes here but you're absolutely right you know um the, the pcs have kind of created this problem for themselves where you know can we really take them at their word and so you know while it's true that there are no changes to the green belt in this this particular round there's a lot of concerns that there could be something coming down the pike there's a lot of backlash and fallout from the you know deciding to open up the green belt recently after promising not to uh and and I think, you know, expanding the, the municipal settlement boundaries in, in this current legislation uh, it, it has raised a lot of concerns about uh, not necessarily protected, you know, legally protected land, but but farmland and, and rural areas. I know environmental defense has been staunchly opposed to this. And, uh, you know, the executive director, Tim Gray, actually did a, a good job in illustrating you know, a worst case scenario in, you know, from a climate perspective. And he's warning people that there could be five story apartment buildings in the middle of a cornfield. And, and, you know, there, it's going to kind of come down to the rollout of this, that there are uh, a lot of loosening of rules and it's going to be how it really plays out in practice, I think is going to be where we can evaluate if this, you know, if this was something that the Ford government was successful on, because of course, if they actually do get these homes built where we need them built, um, I think that a lot of this criticism will, of course, disappear because I think everyone can agree that something needs to be done on housing. But there's not only criticism for this, you know, the Real Estate Association headed up by Tim Hudak, a former PC leader, the Residential Construction Council of Ontario, they are supporting these moves, saying it's going to streamline, uh, you know, uh, land use planning policy moves and, and speed up approvals of, of projects. Uh, I, I think there's just a lot of concerns about, you know, where this is happening. And, and that's uh, that I guess that remains to be seen is how this is all going to roll out. Well, especially, as I said, you know, this, this is going to put some city councils, including the one in Hamilton, frankly, that, that were resistant to the urban boundary expansion at all. Uh, and basically now there's going to be pressure on a number of these developers to simply say, well, look, at the, the province says we can do this, uh, and they're going to be butting heads on this. So I, I don't know how many starts they're actually going to be because this is, you know, the, the, they're going to say no, and then they're going to go to the tribunal, and, and it's going to go back and forth like this. And they just seem to be creating more problems than they are offering solutions here. Yeah. And I guess, you know, since you brought up the tribunal, there there are some moves there because we know the landlord and tenant, uh, the landlord and tenant board is, is just completely backlogged right now. The average to get a hearing is eight months. Uh, and you're right that just doubling the number of adjudicators um, might not be enough when you're kind of creating the potential for more cases as well. Uh, so I think, you know, th there is the potential that things could get worse before they get better. But it's, it's a multi-pronged 
approach. And so I think that, you know, while there are some good uh, nuggets in this legislation, um, you know, I, I think more people at the LTB is is necessary just based on, you know, the what we've been hearing is happening there. But it's also creating the potential for a bigger caseload. And you're right that nothing has really changed on paper in terms of these projections for housing starts. Um, there was about 80,000 um, annually for the, for the next three years, and we need to be at about 150,000. And I was on this technical briefing for this uh, legislation. And, you know, we asked these officials, um, you know, who can kind of give you some background information, a bit of a technical uh, explanation of, of, of this these moves. And the officials said that there's still nothing changed even after these changes are going to be introduced and announced. There's nothing changing in their projections for housing starts. So I'm still not really seeing, uh, you know, the, the the math here and and showing, you know, how this is actually going to happen. But like I said, it's still early days yet. Um, and so it's really going to be up to the Ford government to make sure that this is going to roll out um, as, as they want it to and do what what it what what the goal is here. Uh, with uh, Sabrina Nanji, publisher of uh, Queen's Park Observer, uh, you've also been doing uh, some digging into fundraising. And it appears uh, from uh, the numbers that you've uncovered here that despite some of the criticisms the Ford government seems to be getting these days, uh, it hasn't hurt them uh, when it comes to fundraising, has it? No, they are they are just plowing right ahead. Uh, it's not really surprising you know, conservatives, generally speaking, have uh, t- have have tend to you know outstrip their rivals when it comes to raising money. Um, and of course, you know, being a, a very powerful majority government at Queens Park, stakeholders, the types of people who are you know donating money, um, they, they they kind of want to give money to the people who are in power. Like I don't know who's donating thousands of dollars to hang out with the the liberals right now. You know, unrecognized party status. Um, in third place at Queen's Park. So some of this wasn't surprising. I think what was most surprising was, you know, how much uh, the the conservatives have have raked in, you know, over four and a half million in just the first quarter of this year. So that's, uh, you know, just the first months of, of 2023. And that is, you know, not even close to what their rivals have raised, which is uh, for the for the grits, it's about 300, just over $304,000 over that same time period. For the NDP, it's just over 200,000. I think, you know, there's something to dig into there. It's interesting that the liberals are have been able to raise more than the NDP. But there's also a big caveat here because Elections Ontario, where, you know, I'm getting all these numbers, they're publicly posted, everyone can go dig into them. They don't readily disclose donations under $200. So those smaller donors are not really um, captured in this, in these numbers. And the NDP likes to say that they are the party of smaller donors. And so, you know, their internal numbers might be a lot bigger than than what uh, than what we're seeing on the Elections Ontario website. But I mean, the takeaway is still that the opposition parties are going to have to do a lot more to be able to put up a, a competitive fight to the Ford government, because as we know, campaigns cost money and donations are a big part of that. What's going to happen with Ontario Place? I mean, this has been a very, very prickly issue for not just this government, but past governments as well. Uh, you know, b- back in the day, you know, in, in the seventies, I mean, this was a, this was the jewel on Toronto's waterfront. Uh, it's it's old, it's tired, it's beaten up, but it's outdated right now. And governments for time now have been offering ideas and solutions. There's going to be casino at one time. There's a bunch of things going on. Uh, has Ford weighed in on this? And and what kind of reaction are, are, is the government getting on it? Yeah, well, it's it's interesting because this is a provincial issue, but it has become a wedge issue in Toronto's mayoral by-election coming up, where we have 
uh, virtually all the mayoral candidates. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of candidates to be to be fair, yeah. but you know, the maybe the more the more high profile contenders have made their pitches for Ontario Place, and they very widely and some of them are at odds with what the Ford government's plans are here. And I, I think that, you know, the Ford government is definitely paying attention to what the the mayor, potential mayors want here. Ford, um, his camp, uh, you know, Ford Nation supporters and operatives, uh, they, they are all in working on um, certain mayoral by-elections. There are Ford operatives, you know, Ford connected people working on Anna Bylaw's campaign, working on Brad Bradford's campaign and, and Mark Saunders. Uh, and so, you know, I think, you know, Ford has said he wants to stay out of it, but it, it's, it's kind of becoming impossible to do that. Um, and so one of the more um, interesting proposals for Ontario Place that's getting a lot of buzz at Queen's Park is to move the Ontario Science Centre from North York, where it currently is, down to the waterfront site. And that is something that I think, you know, has been proposed by Anna Bailau and actually turned out to be quite prescient because the infrastructure minister, Kinga Surma, said the government is, is working to do just that and, and has been working to do just that. So I think, you know, that one was uh, probably scored some points, uh, you know, uh, over at Queen's Park from from City Hall. Uh, and, and I think also, you know, there's a lot of controversy about this uh, waterfront park and, and sp- private spa. Of course, you know, people are concerned and want to keep the land public. But, you know, Thermae, the spa company that is proposing to to make these changes downtown, has had to do a lot of damage control and a lot of, um, you know, public speaking to to say that, you know, part part. They want to keep part of this land and even more of it public. They've actually had to change their plans to kind of address some of this backlash that's happening. So absolutely, Ontario Place, even though it's a provincial issue, it's become, a, you know, a flashpoint in the mayoral election. It's funny that, you know, the, as you say, the premier says, I want to stay out of this. Like, although he's been he's been quite clear suggesting he doesn't want Toronto to elect a left-leading mayor. He says that would be disastrous. And uh, he hasn't named names, but I think we all know who they're talking about there. Uh, listen, we talked about all this money that uh, that the, the Ford government's raising now, $4.5 million in, in Q1. Uh, they're going to obviously throw a lot of that into into promotion and advertising over the summer. Uh, what are they focusing on? What are what are they going to try to sell us and present to us now? I mean, uh, it was highways there for the longest time, and that was uh, that was one of the main thrusts of their ele- reelection campaign. Are they going back to that now? Uh, yeah, actually, they they really are. They're they're still on that track. Um, I actually this week in Queens Park Observer uh, did a rundown of with the social media ad campaigns from all the political parties, and it's actually interesting because the PCs are are doing you know not so much. Um, advertising on policy, they do have a couple of Facebook ads running right now targeting um, folks in the GTA about Highway 413. They're pumping it up as, you know, uh, it's it's going to help with gridlock, help with traffic. Of course, you know, as we've talked about many times, there's a lot of unanswered questions on this highway, including the cost uh, and certain timelines. Um, but they're still pumping that up. They're still riding those coattails from their, their campaign, um, which we know that, you you know, Highway 413 was a big part in it. And they're also targeting, um, you know, diverse and ethnic communities. They now have paid advertising to wish people um, happy Ramadan, happy Passover, you name it. And they're targeting mostly younger men. That th- Those are the people who are seeing these ads. And when you compare that to the NDP, which has actually been taking out more ads, spending more money, 
it happened just ha- so happens to be targeting younger women uh, compared to the conservatives. They've been pumping up their new leader, Marit Stiles and Sarah Jama. Uh, and and po- it's interesting. I think they need to do more to introduce Marit advertising as part of that, but introduce her to the public because she's still a new leader and she didn't really have the the coverage, the the buzz, the headlines that would have come if she was contested in her leadership contest, which we know she was unopposed. So. You know, uh, we we just had a recent poll from from Angus Reid that said that while Marit Stiles has, you know, um, boosted support for the NDP and and ex- actually taken some away from the liberals, people still really don't know who she is. So I think we can probably start to see some more advertising from them on, on that front. And it's all quiet from the liberals. There's there's no advertising. But then again, they don't really have much to talk about, not much to say about a leadership race. Um, and, and they're just in rebuild mode right now. So uh all quiet from the liberals, not so much from the PCs, but the NDP are really going hard on the social media advertising campaigns right now. Always great to track that and keep an eye on what's going on and where their priorities are going to be, too. Uh, and to do that, of course, you should uh, be reading Queen's Park Observer. Uh, Sabrina, always a pleasure. Thanks for the time today. Really appreciate the, the efforts uh, that you and your staff are doing every time to keep us up to uh, to speed on what's happening. Have a great week, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Bob. Take care. Sabrina Nanji, the publisher of Queen's Park Observer. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.